0: Hey guys, so in the tradition of Alan Partridge himself, I got a second series and I didn't even need to lap dance for it. A warm welcome all to the first episode of series 2 of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, back all refreshed after a short break designed for me to recharge and research. I'm Paul, I'm still the host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, and as it says on the tin, it's still a show that digs out the obscure and unfamiliar cases that the UK has to offer. I thank you guys for joining me. New listeners welcome and old friends, it's great to have you back. The fridge blackboard is still as full as ever. There are loads of exciting things happening right now and several interesting listener submitted cases in various stages, either being planned, currently being written or have been completed that will be heading onto the show at a later date. I've had quite a few listeners submit ideas for cases recently, many of which I've been unfamiliar with and equally many that I've already planned to cover at some point. So that's great and I look forward to bringing you those because I'm very impressed with what's been submitted. There's always an invite open for listeners to get in touch and submit a case that you think would make a suitable and entertaining episode of the podcast. Hopefully by now you know the kind of things we like. So I hope everyone's good and hopefully we finally got rid of The beast from the east and the pest from the west, all this weather nonsense, they want to piss off as well. I've had to work harder than Barry White's belt just to be able to afford my heating of late. Whenever I've heard these terms bandied round recently, I haven't been able to think of anything but the crow from below and the dove from above from shooting stars. Remember classic TV show shooting stars? Hopefully everybody does. I used to love it, absolutely always used to get my mum to tape it when I was out gallivanting on a Friday night. If you're unfamiliar with Shooting Stars, check out on YouTube and if not, Iranu is all I can say. Thanks very much to my Patreon supporters who've begun to support the show during my break. That's a big shout out to Melissa Davis, Tina Coughlin, Melanie Baker and the Minds of Madness team. Your support means the world all. It's very, very much appreciated. Thank you. As I ended the last series by saying, from this series onwards, instead of recommending a blog or a podcast that I've listened to at about this time each week, which I used to do, I'm going one better now and each week I'll be bringing you the host promoting their own show in a little snippet that tells exactly what it's about and um, they can sell it to you. The true crime community is brilliant like that and it does good deeds for one another and maybe you'll just find your next listen. So this week I'm handing you over to the hosts of a couple of great podcasts, Bonnie at Whining About Crime and Roseanne at California Dreaming. Please take it away, guys. I'm the Crime Whiner from Whining About Crime, a podcast that searches for the disconnect in true crime cases. The things that make a case more complicated than it seems on the surface. So please After you've enjoyed this episode of True Crime Enthusiast, come join me at whining about crime with a glass of your favorite grapes. You'll know you've found me when you hear me say, Please don't leave me. Hi, I'm Roseanne, host of the California Dreaming Podcast, a show that delves into the darker side of the not so golden state. Together, we will visit some of the most unhinged and chilling crimes that ever shook California and beyond. Join me as I take you on a journey into a new story each week with a different backdrop from all around California. From the bright lights and glamour of Hollywood to the picturesque and tranquil wine country. No crime, no town, nobody is off limits. Listen to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Links to both shows can be found in my show notes this week, and I hope that you go and check each one out, if you don't already of course that is. They really are both ace and fab writing, great presenting, and I can't recommend each highly enough. So back to this show and the case that I have opted for to start the new series. Southwark is a borough in South London. It's home to about a quarter of a million people and the location of many of the modern attractions that the capital has to offer. These include the Tate Modern Gallery, Shakespeare's Globe Theatre and the tallest building in the UK, the Shard. It's also where many of London's famous bridges, for example Tower Bridge and London Bridge, connect the district to the City of London and is also the birthplace of several notable people. These include wrestler Giant Haystacks, former England captain Rio Ferdinand, actors Tim Roth and Jack Carter himself, Michael Caine, and best-selling children's author Enid Blyton, all hail from Southwark. Enid Blyton. I'm sure there are a few listeners out there who've leafed through a noddy book or two in their time, and that's not a euphemism, although I'm sure it does sound like one, or read the famous five book with a lashings and lashings of ginger beer and boiled eggs. I was always struck by just how much they seemed to scoff in every story, they only like decided to solve a mystery or stop some smugglers in between stuffing their faces, and it never seemed to rain wherever they were, ever. One of the towns in the Southwark borough is the town of Bermondsey, and it's around this area that the tale that makes up the opening episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast season 2 is set. Now early back in the first series, we covered the case of Stockwell Strangler Kenneth Erskine in a two-part episode. Jump back and have a look at it if it's one that you've missed. And this dealt with a disturbed individual who terrorised the elderly over the summer of 1986. Erskine caused carnage and he spread a real fear throughout the old folk of South London and there was a collective sigh when he was finally caught and life could go back to normal. Until just over two years later, and a similar horror and a sense of fear hung over the area. Please be advised that as ever, with the cases that are featured on the show, low care has been taken to retain the dignity and anonymity of victims. This episode contains descriptions of crimes that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so please use your discretion guys. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast as we look back at the case of The Beast of Bermondsey. In the late 1980s, Bermondsey was much like other urban parts of the capital and was one of the places that are now described as up-and-coming areas, which in my experience means that it had seen better days, but those days were on the way back, with an active regeneration cracking on and plans for more affluent neighbourhoods underway. Any listeners hailing from Bermondsey, that isn't meant to offend you at all, I've never been there and I certainly don't come from paradise myself. As with many places, there were large areas of council housing and flats, but you often find that these are the areas more likely to have a feeling of community and be places where you know and bother with your neighbours. And this large community comprised of a wide demograph, from young professionals to families of all ages, and of course, a large population of the elderly. So by 1988, the terror that the Stockwell Strangler had inflicted upon the areas of South London just two years before had all but faded the elderly were more relaxed and perhaps somewhat less vigilant about securing their doors and windows than they had been at the time of his rampage. But of course, the sad fact is, if that a person is hell-bent on committing robbery or violence, then they will always find ways around this, despite best efforts and precautions, and will commit just that. Lant Street is an example of one of the more urban streets within Southwark. It's relatively narrow and today comprises a block of flats at one end, a large wine company and letting agents on one side and a pub called the Gladstone smack bang in the middle. Just behind the pub is a large complex of flats and properties called Redmond House which stretches up and backs onto Borough High Street. It's unlikely to have changed very much structurally since the 1980s and it wasn't a massive block back then, again one filled with a cross-section of people with many of them being elderly. It was in this block in late December 1988 that the subject of this week's episode was first to strike. It was Boxing Day 1988, it's usually a happy time for families who've celebrated Christmas together and a 57 year old lady who lived within the block had done just this. The lady was a partially abled single woman who lived alone and tended to keep to herself but that year had been invited to spend Christmas Eve and Christmas Day with relatives who lived nearby and had done so By Boxing Day, like most of us when we stay with friends or relatives, the draw of going home to your own familiarity and comforts was predominant in her mind, and as a result the lady had returned home to the ground floor flat that she lived in. She'd lived there for a number of years and she liked it, it was her home and a place of sanctuary and familiarity. One other person knew that this was her sanctuary also, a person with a disturbing propensity for violence. He'd watched the flat over a period of time and he knew that a middle-aged lady lived there alone and on Boxing Day 1988 he decided to pay her a visit. The lady had only been at home for a matter of seconds that evening and was just coming through the door when she was disturbed by the terrifying sound of someone hurtling towards her and before she knew what was happening she was grabbed from behind and confronted by an intruder in her own home. She was unable to flee as her mobility issues meant that she couldn't move fast and she was no chance of a physical match for the intruder. That must have been absolutely terrifying, must not it? I was burgled myself some years ago, as I've said before on the podcast, and for a while afterwards I felt unsettled in my house. So how it must have felt to actually be confronted by an intruder well it just doesn't bear thinking about really. All sorts of things must have been going through her head and in her fear she must have told the intruder to take what he wanted and to just go. As I've said this was a lady of advanced years, partially abled, no threat to the hardened criminal really. The intruder ignored her pleas and the actions that followed are one of the most horrific and disturbing that I certainly have ever come across. Despite offering no resistance and too afraid to even challenge the intruder, the lady was savagely attacked. She was beaten horrendously, being left with wounds including a fractured skull, a broken jaw, a fractured eye socket and cheekbone, and multiple severe cuts and bruises, inflicted after the intruder had attacked and beaten her with a steam iron. She was left only with partial sight, she was left brain damaged and needing regular care. But much worse, if this can be believed, was that when she'd been battered senseless and had her home ransacked, the lady was then brutally raped in a horrific prolonged attack and kicked several times in the head before the intruder left. He'd forever changed the life of a lady who had lived alone, never married or even been in a relationship before, and all for a haul that consisted of just £75 and six packets of cigarettes. Can you believe that? What kind of monster can do that? Nearly 24 hours had passed before the lady was discovered, close to death, by concerned relatives. They'd been trying to reach her by telephone throughout the day, and as time passed and they'd still not been able to reach her after several attempts, their concern rapidly turned to alarm. Eventually they went round to check and found her lying on the floor of her ransacked flat. The emergency services were contacted and the lady was rushed to hospital where emergency surgery was performed that was to save her life. Police photographs from the crime scene show the flat to have been ransacked and a police officer was later to describe the crime scene saying She was very, very badly beaten. It was totally gratuitous violence. The flat where she lived was ransacked. Property was stolen. She laid there for 24 hours or so before she was discovered by her family. It was quite obvious from the scene that she had met her attacker inside the premises. She had a fractured skull, fractured jaw, She was left very close to death. After a couple of days recovering, the lady was able to speak to police about the attack, and despite her injuries and obvious trauma, she was able to give a remarkable description of the attacker. The resulting artist's impression pictured a white male in his 20s to 30s, slightly built, with lanky, scruffy brown hair worn with a distinct fringe. She was also able to describe the attacker of smelling strongly of cigarettes and alcohol at the time of the assault. A team of detectives, sickened by such a harrowing crime against an already vulnerable person, began the hunt for the attacker. They quickly came to realize that the man they were hunting was an already experienced offender, one with some level of forensic awareness and local knowledge. He knew that the victim lived alone and that she was someone he could easily overpower, meaning it was likely that he either knew his victim or had seen or watched her prior to the attack. No fingerprints belonging to the rapist were obtained from the crime scene he had taken care to wipe surfaces and objects that he touched, and he was able to enter and leave the scene without drawing attention to himself. He had, however, left traces of himself at the scene. Tapings from the victim's clothing and living room carpet were to provide forensic traces of the attacker, albeit minute ones. Samples were also recovered from the lady herself, but as DNA testing was still in its relative infancy at the time and wasn't as advanced as nowadays, a match couldn't be found. It was also some years before the creation of the National DNA Database to have been able to check the sample against for a match. Police wondered about the type of person who could commit such an atrocity. He was likely an already experienced burglar and one familiar with the area, but it was the rape and level of savage violence that worried most. They had a man roaming free who was a sexual sadist and an extremely violent offender who used a savage level of unnecessary violence to gain the victim's compliance he had left his victim for dead, and with each day that passed that he remained free, with it grew the chances that he could strike again. Police tried every line of appeal available, but despite the artist's impression that was widely publicised at the time, no information suggesting the possible identity of the attacker was forthcoming. No property such as jewellery, which would be traceable if it was sold on, had been taken, so a suspect couldn't be traced who this means. There was no widespread CCTV back in 1988 as is so commonplace nowadays so this was another line of inquiry that was unavailable and although a massive house-to-house inquiry in the area was undertaken and the residents of every flat in the block spoken to and statements taken from them no one had seen or heard anything out of the ordinary that evening. Police were left to trawl through the records of all known local burglars and sex offenders looking for a possible suspect, and as the weeks following the attack turned into months, many were spoken to and eliminated from the inquiry. Police were still working their way through the list by September 1989, when the man who became to become known as the Beast of Bermondsey struck again, just 40 yards from the scene of his first attack again at Redmond House. On the evening of September 11th, 1989, a day of the year that I'm sure resonates with everybody for the atrocity that was to occur on that day some years later, a 77-year-old lady who lived in a ground-floor flat just 40 yards from the scene of the Boxing Day attack became the rapist's next target. Again, this was a frail elderly lady, one with limited mobility, who, due to advanced arthritis, couldn't move without the aid of a walking frame. And like the first victim one who had never married and lived alone. Late at night, she was alone at home when the rapist broke in through the back door of the flat where she lived with her cat. Like the first victim, she was savagely battered into submission in a horrendously violent attack and was very seriously sexually assaulted. The details of the attack are so disturbing that police have never revealed the full extent of them. Before leaving, the rapist had again ransacked the flat and left with just £5 in change, and a striped acrylic jumper. Another life had been destroyed for just that. Like the first victim, the second victim was able to give police a description of the attacker that was very similar to the first's artist impression, and police soon realised that this second attack was very likely the work of the same individual who had struck on Boxing Day the previous year, and that he was deliberately targeting elderly women. There was just 40 yards between the locations of each attack and the victimology and modus operandi was also near identical in each case. Elderly women, each with a lack of mobility, living alone in ground floor premises, savage violence and a perverse and brutal sexual assault in each case, also with small amounts of cash stolen. The second victim had also reported that the rapist smelled strongly of alcohol and that during the assault he had taken steps to avoid a seeing his face. He had attacked her from behind, then had alternated between covering her face, then his own face. It had to be the same man, and this attack again strengthened the feeling that he was local to the area and had carried out surveillance before the attacks. As we've said countless times on the show in previous episodes, offenders operate within an area that they feel comfortable with or have prior knowledge of. This was someone familiar with where he struck if not living in the area currently, then it was certainly somewhere he knew well and frequented on a regular basis, and more pressing than ever, he needed to be caught and stopped. The local press had jumped on the story by now and linked the attacks by this time, and widespread sensationalist headlines such as Do You Know The Beast Of Bermondsey? appeared throughout the local papers, carrying Bartists' impressions, documenting the two attacks and what was known about the offender. Now on one hand these reports were getting the appeals out there to a wide audience in the days before it could be done at the click of a button long before the onset of the social media age that we now live in and of course emphasising the horror of what this individual was doing. But the flip side of the coin is that I'm sure that sensationalism like this does cause a state of fear and panic amongst the community, it certainly did in this case. The elderly of Southwark were left terrified by these reports and the thought that any one of them could be the next target of this guy who despite the best efforts of police was still at large. Less than a month later, another member of the community was to fall prey to the rapist this time a mile away from the scene of the previous attacks in Bermondsey. If the previous attacks hadn't sounded awful enough, this one was to become the worst yet. It showed that the rapist had reached disturbing new levels of offending yet it was to be this attack which gave police possible new leads about the man they were hunting a ground floor flat on rule road in bermondsey was the scene of the beast's next attack and like the previous two the victim again was an elderly lady of 66 years old who lived alone at about 11 o'clock p.m on the evening of october the 7th she had just waved goodbye to her nephew and moments after her nephew had left the beast broke into her home The lady was then subjected to a horrendous ordeal that lasted for hours. Again, the exact details of the attack have never been made public. They are far too distressing, but needless to say, the lady was severely beaten and subjected to an appalling, almost unimaginable sexual assault. A police officer was to later describe the attack. The attacker was with the victim for something like three hours and he actually degraded this poor woman. He subjected her to terrible terrible sexual assaults as well as physically assaulting her. She couldn't believe that somebody could actually do that to another human being and it was absolutely evil. Powerful statements such as that give you the idea of the kind of horror that this creature was inflicting. I mean this really is the stuff of nightmares isn't it? Along with crimes against children, crimes against the vulnerable and the elderly tend to shock and anger me the most, and especially sex crimes. I find that a particularly different level of evil, really. Can you imagine an ordeal lasting three hours, though? How unthinkable must that be? And what I found particularly chilling and upsetting about this attack was that in between assaults, this lady tried everything she could to get him to stop. She tried offering him cups of tea, claiming she needed to visit the toilet. She tried scolding and shaming him and then downright just pleaded with him to not rape her again. She was just ignored, with the rapist telling her that he wasn't leaving until he was satisfied. How monstrous is that? Before he left, the attacker removed all traces he could of himself from the flat, and then cut the telephone cord. But this attack was to provide police with a few leads. They were already convinced that this was the work of the Beast of Bermondsey and were alarmed that the offender had escalated and evolved to the point where he was confident enough to spend a number of hours at the scene and to prolong the assault. But this longer attack meant that the victim had spent more time with the rapist and as a result perhaps could give clearer description of him, perhaps as a more detailed artist's impression and a description enriched with what he was wearing, what his voice was like, any habits of characteristics that he may have had that type of thing. The remarkable woman, although understandably severely traumatised by her ordeal, was able to provide police with some clues to work with. She described the rapist as having a London accent, being a heavy smoker and again smelling strongly of alcohol, with him telling her that he had not long left the pub. He'd worn a grubby looking green tracksuit and was described as being in his mid-twenties to early thirties, about five feet eight inches tall, unshaven with a nose described as crooked or broken and having short dark hair with a distinctive fringe swept to one side of his head he had what was also described as long piano type fingers and had also removed his top during the assaults and the lady remembered that the rapist had several distinctive marks and moles covering his back she had also come out with a curious story that following one of the assaults the rapist had crossed himself and issued the latin phrase De Profundis, which is the beginning to an old Catholic prayer and can be translated to mean out of the depths. When he was apparently satisfied, the rapist left her taking two purses and a sum of about £30 in cash, cutting the telephone cord again to the flat as he left. So, was the rapist a lapsed Catholic, and although unlikely, was he seeking some sort of absolution or forgiveness for his crimes? Pretty soon, all three attacks had been officially linked. Although this latest attack was a mile from the previous two, and a mile can be like a different world in areas of urban London, the circumstances were near identical. It was undoubtedly the work of the same man. By now, police had built up a picture of the man that they were hunting. They pondered why he had moved locations. With nighttime surveillance concentrated on Southwark, had he felt the heat breathing down his neck and moved to a location he felt safer for himself? Had he moved to the area for personal reasons or for employment? Or had he decided to change tactics after reading the press reports about his activities, thinking that the police were getting close to him? it certainly worked. As said, yes, it was only a mile at separated attacks, but a mile in urban London could cast a net that encompassed thousands more people than the already massive pool from the first two attacks. So armed with a description of the rapist, and bolstered with the clues that the latest victim had added to this, a televised appeal was made on Crime Watch UK in December 1989. Ah, Crime Watch, first one of the series, eh? I hope you didn't think that over the interim between series I decided to call off my shaming of the BBC for cancelling it. Sorry, not a chance. I didn't realise feeling ran as high as it does, but I know I'm not alone in thinking this. You are a disgrace, BBC, for cancelling an institution like that. Take some of the other shite that you put on off and give it its monthly hour back. And back with Nick Ross as well. No one tells a scary yet informative story like Nick Ross. I bet his kids used to absolutely dread him telling them a bedtime story. So although I promote here on the show about Crime Watch's successes, unlike others, this appeal about the Beast of Bermondsey didn't receive much of a response, despite being watched by many people nationwide. Only few calls were received and those that were either were the worker cranks or misguided people who genuinely thought they were offering help or useful information which when checked was revealed to have been already discounted. Police were no nearer to catching him and there was the real risk that he would offend again. The time between attacks had shortened considerably and as described the length and depravity of the assaults had increased. Two months later in February 1990 police fears came true when he did just that john mckenna walk is a quiet residential street in the keaton's estate located just off Collett road in rotherhithe bermondsey and sometime between february the 28th and the 2nd of march 1990 the beast was to claim yet another victim from the now sadly familiar victim type An 84-year-old disabled woman living alone in a ground floor flat was in bed late at night when the beast broke into her home and savagely battered her into unconsciousness. He then ransacked the flat and stole her pension book, bank card and her handbag. But unusually there was no sexual assault this time. The attacker simply fled after robbing and savagely beating a defenceless pensioner. She was left with her upper jaw fractured and her lower jaw fractured in two places, as well as severe bruising and lacerations to her face, neck and head. The absence of sexual assault didn't make the attack any less savage, and it certainly traumatised the victim no less. In fact, the attack was so horrendous and it traumatised her so much that she was left physically unable to speak ever again. She could never utter another word. Can you believe that? Where is the need to inflict such horrendous violence on someone so vulnerable? As with the previous attacks, no fingerprints belonging to the rapist had been found at the scene, but he had again left behind items of forensic evidence that police collected as evidence. At each of the crime scenes, the rapist had smoked cigarettes and had left the cigarette butts, which were collected and samples of his saliva obtained from. Semen samples were also obtained from the victims and their clothing and enough of these were collected that police were enabled to gain a small, but definite, partial genetic profile from him, but there was still no identification. The hunt continued, and police faced pressure from all sides here. The general public were outraged and horrified by the thought of such a monster prowling the streets, and the desire to catch this man before he struck again and ruined another life was prevalent, and almost a desperate one throughout the team of detectives hunting him it must have been so frustrating for police they were working against the clock not knowing if and when but with a very real fear that this creature would strike again and knowing that he would have more than likely been someone from the local area and right on their doorstep it almost doesn't bear saying but when all the leads that they had had led to dead ends and no fingerprint evidence to search and compare to ones held on file they were practically left waiting for him to strike again and perhaps this time they may get the break that would lead them to his door. And on May 31st, a discovery was made that led them to think he had struck again, and this time had crossed the line from savage rapist to savage killer. Irene Graney was a 68-year-old woman, again like the previous victims in the series, who lived alone in a ground-floor maisonette in Eugenia Road, South Bermondsey. Irene was a lonely and retiring person who didn't venture out much, having no close friends or close family, and on May 31st 1990, Irene was discovered dead in her home. It was estimated that she'd been dead for some six weeks before she was discovered, having died in mid-April, and from the discovery of her body, it was quite apparent that Irene had met a violent and unnatural death. She was found on the floor of her home in a state of undress, and her lower body was very badly decomposed, an autopsy was able to determine that she'd been stabbed to death. To further this, a bloodstained kitchen knife was found in her flat. There were also signs that the property had been ransacked, although it was unable to be determined what, if anything, had been taken apart from money, as Irene's purse was found empty. Now aside from the obvious horror of this, I thought it was especially tragic that six weeks can go by, before an elderly lady is missed by anyone with no family or friends to be concerned after not seeing or hearing from her in what should be a fraction of that time whenever i learn of things like that the empathy in me makes me want to go and check on any elderly people i know just to make sure that they're okay have a brew and a chat with them and just generally provide some company to let them know that there are still people who care out there it still remains and will always remain the maxim of what i promote here on the show nobody deserves to be forgotten A full-scale murder investigation was launched and immediately Irene's murder was linked to the previous attacks by the Beast of Bermondsey. The geography of the attack and the victimology all fitted plus the method it was within a mile of the previous attacks and again was an elderly lady attacked and sexually assaulted in her own ground floor home with a small amount of cash taken but this time the attacker had murdered his victim. Was it the beast and had he crossed the line from violent rapist to sadistic killer? Again police were left frustrated. No unidentified fingerprints, full or partial, were found at the scene and because of the passage of time from the murder occurring to Irene being discovered any forensic evidence that police may have been able to obtain had deteriorated and was lost due to climate and decomposition. And then the attacks stopped, or at least they stopped being reported it's a sad fact that many elderly people belong to a proud generation where they think differently and don't like to almost trouble the police, thinking that they already have enough to do and don't wish them to trouble them with what they believe are trifling matters. So there may have been more attacks, perhaps in different parts of the city and perhaps crimes that did not obviously match the MO of the Beast of Bermondsey. It's already apparent that he didn't commit sexual assault in all of the crimes definitely linked to him although he had used increasing violence. Had he struck elsewhere, and it had not been flagged as an attack by the same man, but after the murder of Irene Graney, there were no more obvious attacks that police could link to the Beast of Bermondsey. What had happened to him? Had he left the area, or was he imprisoned for a separate unlinked crime? Was he in hospital, or had he even died? As the trail went cold, the investigation was scaled down, and despite this not sitting easy with police, that a man responsible for some of the worst atrocities that he had ever seen remained at large they were powerless to do anything crime does not wait manpower is always needed elsewhere and eventually the investigation was shelved as a cold case the status of which it was to remain for many years it must be so frustrating crimes such as these obviously affect and horrify a normal person and when you have a picture of the man that you're hunting and a decent general picture at that. To then have the case remain ineffective must be a massive blow. And looking what police had, they did have things to work with. He was an obvious local offender an experienced burglar. He had distinctive moles and marks on him, a propensity for violence, an experienced criminal, possibly Catholic, a drinker. This guy would have been in the files somewhere undoubtedly. Yet it's easy nowadays with the benefit of the National DNA Database and advancements in forensic science and technology to think that police should have caught him relatively quickly. In 1988 things like this were way off. As time passed the Beast of bermondsey case remained inactive. Cases like these are never closed but when the information runs dry and all avenues of inquiry have been exhausted they are effectively shelved pending regular reviews. In the mid-1990s, the National DNA Database was created, and samples of identifiable DNA, the likes of blood and saliva, were taken from people arrested for offences, and upon any conviction, these samples remained on the database. It's well documented that several cold cases have been resolved many years after the event due to a review of unsolved cases that retain forensic evidence. Even years later, and a match has been found between retained samples from unsolved cases and samples stored on the National DNA Database. One example of this that springs to mind off the top of my head is a case I covered on the first series of the show, the cold case of Nora Trott. The long-serving police in Southwark had never forgotten the crimes of the Beast of Bermondsey and by the year 2010, ten years after his last known attack, a cold case review team was tasked with examining a number of unsolved cases stretching back many years from the South London area. One of the cases in the series that was up for a re-examination was the murder of Irene Graney which was of course linked to the Beast of Bermondsey attacks and the team, led by Detective Chief Inspector Brian Bowden-Brown, were so horrified by what they read in the files, that like the original investigating team, they became determined to do whatever they could to try to resolve the case. Most of the officers involved in the original investigation had taken it as a personal case to them. They had relatives of a similar age to the victims, who lived in similar circumstances, and that could have just as easily fallen prey to this man. And as the attacks had occurred within a mile of Southwark Police Station, some just yards from it, More than one police officer felt a proper responsibility rather than duty to bring this man to justice. Of course he hadn't been at the time but now after so long was it possible that the beast of Bermondsey could be brought to justice. It meant a practical reinvestigation of the attacks, a fresh examination using modern forensic techniques of any retained physical evidence from the original investigation would have to be performed and witness statements and reports would have to be re-read, checked and witnesses interviewed again where possible. But it was here again where police found that they were at a disadvantage almost from the off. The four victims of the assaults from 1988 to 1990 had by this time all sadly passed away, so they could not of course be re-interviewed, a task that although it would have been traumatic, it would have been necessary and advantageous. Many witnesses who had given statements in the original investigation were spoken to again, but they could offer little if nothing new to their original statements. The passage of time and people's memories always makes this a difficult task. In a bid for fresh information, the reopened investigation was featured heavily again in the local Southwark press, and when there was no further information forthcoming four years after it had been reopened, it even once again featured on Crime Watch UK as an appeal in 2004. Because, of course, back in 2004, Crime Watch was still on on the BBC. There was even a £10,000 reward now offered by the Metropolitan Police for information leading to the arrest and conviction of this man, and it was hoped that this would be an incentive for someone to come forward. Perhaps someone had had a suspicion about a partner, a relative or a friend for many years, but had not come forward at the time due to misplaced loyalty or a sense of fear. Perhaps a financial incentive would prove stronger than just doing the right thing. In the end, it was to be thanks to technological advancements in DNA that were to provide police with a breakthrough. Most physical evidence from the Boxing Day 1988 attack and the September 11th 1989 attacks by the beast had long since been destroyed or not retained. But there were a few DNA samples that had been kept and it had been established that both crimes were the work of the same offender. A genetic fingerprint had been made using the best technology available at the time. At the time the samples were initially taken, the technology wasn't in place to test further and the National DNA Database hadn't been established until 1995. Now both of these were in place, work began to try to establish a stronger, more updated profile that could be run against those entered on the database. It was thought likely that if this man was still alive, he would have been a habitual criminal, and there was a chance that he had been arrested and convicted of an unrelated crime in the years following the database's inception, and a match would be able to be made but the investigation had hit another blow. The samples retained from the first two attacks were unusable. When they'd been initially tested using the techniques from years before, each test had destroyed part of the sample until there was too little left to be able to test. The initial swabs from the scenes were also unable to be found, and it was concluded that they had long since been destroyed. But then there was a chink of light in the investigation. In 2005, A forensic investigator named Sarah Musto discovered some tapings that had been taken from the clothing of the third and fourth victims in the 1990 attacks. Tapings that contained very, very minute traces of the offender's DNA. They were so minuscule that the only technique that was open to forensic scientists to be able to get any possible hit from them was to use a technique known as low copy number analysis. This is a form of analysis that may often not grant a full DNA profile but it may grant a partial one. That's to say, it may not give the 1 in a billion chance that 20 numbers from a full, clear DNA profile will give. The less profile will bring up the less numbers, but it will certainly narrow down the suspect pool, and it could point the investigation in the right way that it needed to go. The number of potential matches would depend on the strength of the profile that could be obtained. It was a blinding result when the results of testing came back. The list of possible matches for the sequence of numbers came to less than 30 names. Now this of course is still a massive task. There are 30 people to be eliminated here, 30 people whose movements on the dates and times in question needed to be scrutinised, and of course, any of these people may since have moved away, be in hospital or prison, or may even have since died. But police felt they were closer than ever to finding the beast by now, and work began in earnest to work through the list of potential suspects. Some were easy to eliminate, they would have been too young at the time, or could be proved beyond doubt to have had an alibi for the time of one or more of the attacks, and eventually police were left with just a few names from the list, one of which was outstanding for his potential as a suspect. The suspect's name was Michael Roberts. Roberts was a name well known to the police, native Londoner, He was 39 years old at the time and of no fixed abode and he had a long career of petty crime behind him, beginning in 1980 when he was aged just 14 years old. By this time of his life he was already abusing alcohol and drugs and he'd taken to burglary to fund his habits, gaining a string of convictions for these, all of which took place around the area where he'd been born and lived all of his life. Southwark. Roberts continued using drugs and heavy drinking into adulthood and of course continued to fund these by committing burglaries, with his favoured choice of victims being the elderly or the vulnerable. He would watch properties, choose likely premises to burgle, learn the habits of the occupants, and would then strike when they were out. If they were ever to confront him or he was disturbed, he would never hesitate to use violence against them. What a prized specimen he already sounds, doesn't he? Whether it was just due to nature or the years of alcohol and hard drug use had taken a toll upon him, Roberts was a tall, thin-faced and slightly built individual and a typical bully, one who targeted people that he would have a definite advantage over. And I've got to say as well, he's a proper ugly-looking shy talk. He had a real clack of the ugly stick across the chops, this guy. Unsurprisingly, the violence wasn't just contained to his criminal career. Roberts was known for having a horrendous temper and he was violent towards partners also. Several neighbours related stories of hearing one row or another coming from wherever he lived with different partners, with one in particular relating how she would regularly hear Robert in a rage after a blazing row, counting to ten, and then beating up his partner with a ferocity she described as sounding, like wardrobes were coming down the stairs. You could always hear them fighting, he had the kids screaming, he used to smash the place up. He'd served several terms of imprisonment, the latest and most serious being attack in 1995 on a defenceless elderly man in his own home, a crime for which Roberts was sentenced to six years imprisonment. So out of less than 30 names, here then is a known criminal and serial burglar who throughout his criminal career has targeted the elderly and the vulnerable who's from and lived around the Southwark area all of his life who has an appalling propensity for violence and at the time of the attacks had lived just within a few hundred yards of all of the victims. First in Gaywood Street, close to the first two attacks and then to St James's Road, just 300 yards from the attacks in 1990. Does that sound like a pretty bang-on suspect or what? The investigators thought so. They looked through a series of mugshots taken of Roberts from his many arrests and compared these to the artist's impressions made of the attacker from 15 years before. There were certain similarities, but it was the third artist's impression that really struck them the strongest and made them think, this has got to be the guy. But this wasn't strong enough evidence to press charges. It was compelling, yes. But still, only circumstantial. Police needed more. Shortly, Roberts himself was to provide them with the link that they needed. An 82 year old man living alone in South London, again in Southwark and again in a ground floor flat, opened his front door one day in June 2005, and before he knew what was happening, he was punched hard, straight, squarely in the face, breaking his nose and jaw, and knocking him unconscious. He was then dragged inside and his flat ransacked and money and small items of property were taken before the attacker fled but unwittingly he had dropped an item at the scene that could be traced to him. Crime scene investigators attending the scene found the bus pass of a teenage boy one who was unknown to the victim lying amongst the clutter of the ransacked flat. The bus pass gave an address just off Collet Road in Bermondsey and when this was followed up and police visited the scene They found that the bus pass had been in possession of the boy's stepfather that day. The boy's stepfather was Michael Roberts. Roberts was arrested for assault and battery and taken into custody and a fresh DNA sample was taken from him from a mouth swab and whilst he was under arrest, this was the chance that cold case investigators had been waiting for. They got a chance to see the man that they suspected was the beast who had evaded capture for so long. They were first struck by Roberts' distinct hairstyle and fringe that swept down, a detail which had been a common theme throughout the multiple descriptions that had been obtained from the victims at the times of the attacks. He looked similar to the artist's impressions, strikingly so to the third impression, and also had a crooked, broken-looking nose the same as being described. Whilst he was in custody, Roberts was asked to remove his shirt and this was photographed and the investigators noted a series of distinct moles and marks that covered his back and chest. The details now seemed to be falling into place, but better, more conclusive evidence was yet to come. Roberts' DNA sample, given after the attack on the elderly man, was found to match samples taken from the third and fourth attacks in 1990. A sample of Roberts' DNA was then flown to a laboratory in Denmark and tested using a specialist primitive form of DNA testing that utilised a technique that could ascertain or rule out a match against the basic genetic link that investigators had managed years before to link the first two attacks by the Beast of Bermondsey. And after a wait of two or three weeks, Brian Bowden-Brown got the call that he'd been waiting for. In the opinion of scientists, The sample taken from Michael Roberts was a match for the samples from the scene of the first attack by the Beast of Bermondsey. Police now had multiple forensic evidence that linked Roberts to the scene of all the attacks, and a look into his life and background revealed more evidence to strengthen the case against him and a crucial witness. When speaking to a number of Roberts' ex-partners, one of them, Leanne Wood, who Roberts lived with in St. James's Road in 1990, told a shocking story. She told how she lived in perpetual fear of Roberts, who was often violent and controlling towards her, and when asked if she remembered any of the attacks at the time, she came out with something that she'd been too afraid to say for many years. She told police that when they were together, Roberts would regularly arrive home with handbags, jewellery, and amounts of petty cash, which were the proceeds of his burglaries, and that he would regularly scan the newspapers and local television for news exploits of his crimes. When the report came on of the fourth attack linked to the Beast of Bermondy on the evening it happened, the one attack of the series where the victim was not sexually assaulted, although this was not clarified in the news report, she remembered Robert's claiming almost proudly, I've done that one, but I didn't rape her. At that time, only the attacker himself could have known that. Robert said very little throughout the course of his many police interviews, answering almost every question put to him with, No comment. He maintained this even when he was presented with all of the forensic evidence against him and the circumstantial evidence was put to him. The only time he would say anything ever different was on occasion to feign illness or to other times say that he was exhausted. At other times he would just sit and stare at interviewing officers in an attempt to intimidate or other times would write down every word that was put to him while saying nothing in return. Detective Inspector Bob Meade, an officer working on the reopen case who had been a junior officer on the initial inquiry was to say of Roberts he's probably one of the coldest people I've ever interviewed he would normally just sit there staring at me I think he was genuinely trying to stop me asking the questions but it did him absolutely no good and Michael Roberts was charged with the assaults and rapes committed by the Beast of Bermondsey Although he was strongly suspected of the rape and murder of Irene Graney also, there was insufficient evidence, physical and scientific, to bring any charges of murder and sadly, Irene's case remains officially unsolved to this day. The arrogance of Roberts was such that despite the overwhelming evidence against him, he pleaded not guilty when he came to trial in November 2001 at Southwark Crown Court appearing in the dock for each day of the trial wearing light beige trousers and a black shirt. During the trial, the jury heard disturbing testimony and detailed accounts of the savage and sickening attacks that the victims had suffered, and then the circumstantial evidence against Roberts was outlined, including the proximity to each victim in which he lived at the time of the attacks, his physical similarities to the artist's impressions, and the distinct marks on his back and chest that had been described by the victims. The jury also heard evidence from the two former partners that Roberts had lived with during the period of the attacks, Julie Warner and Leanne Ward. Under oath, both women testified to his violence towards them and Leanne repeated the story that she had told police that Roberts had confessed the fourth attack to her. Julie Warner told them that she remembered Roberts owning the distinct grubby green tracksuit that was described by one of the victims. And then the scientific evidence was presented with detailed explanation of the evidence that had been obtained and held and the process involved in comparing Roberts' DNA sample with those taken from the scenes of the Berminty attacks and the points in which they matched. Counsel for the prosecution, Alison Hunter QC, told the jury that all of this evidence, when taken together, the matches found at different scenes alongside the visual identifications, the confession to the fourth attack Roberts had made to Leanne Ward and the other circumstantial evidence meant that the jury could be sure that Roberts was the attacker, the Beast of Bermondsey. Roberts himself did not give any evidence during the trial, and his barrister, Ali Bajwa QC, could only offer the jury in his closing speech that the Crown had not produced enough evidence to prove that Roberts was conclusively guilty but the evidence against him was overwhelming. It took a jury just a few hours' deliberation to find Michael Roberts unanimously guilty of all charges against him, and he was convicted on three counts of rape, two counts of indecent assault, two counts of inflicting grievous bodily harm with intent, one count of buggery, four counts of burglary. Mr Justice Stephen Robbins said when sentencing, You terrified a whole community of South London. People in South London had been living in fear that they may be your next victim. Over the years, the decades went by and you evaded arrest. Your actions blighted the remaining years of their lives. Their homes should have been their safest refuge where they could expect to live their lives undisturbed and in peace. You must have distilled complete terror and fear one can only imagine. Your utter depravity knows no bounds. These are very, very grave offences. The victims of your offences were all elderly. You broke into their houses and in the middle of the night, you then proceeded to submit them to humiliating and degrading sexual attacks. And unlike Delroy Grant, your offences are aggravated and marked by terrible violence. I'm quite satisfied that you are a danger to society. Therefore, I do sentence you to imprisonment for the rest of your natural life. Roberts received four life sentences, one for each of the attacks, and replied before he was taken down, I will only say this, my lord, I am absolutely not guilty, and I will." Before he was dragged from the dock by prison guards and locked away for his despicable crimes. Sadly, his conviction came too late for any of the victims of his appalling attacks to see him brought to justice, all having passed away in the years since the assaults. The families of some of the victims were there to see Robert sentenced, however, and following his sentencing, the son of one of the victims spoke outside the court, saying, Today's sentence for the families is absolutely brilliant. He deserves everything he got. Delroy Grant, who was mentioned in the previous quote by the way, is another sickening individual known as the Night Stalker. Yes, the UK has one too. An individual who committed a horrific and similar series of assaults to those of Roberts. And one who will be the subject of a future episode of podcast. So Roberts became the first rapist issued with a whole life tariff. Would you have a problem with that? I know for a fact that I certainly wouldn't, and a parasite like that should certainly never ever again see the light of day. But in November 2012, the whole life tariff order was ruled unlawful following an appeal raised by Roberts and four other prisoners who had also been issued whole life terms of sentence at the Court of Appeal in London, and it was concluded by David Perry QC, acting for the Crown, that the whole life tariff issued in Roberts' case was Wrong in principle, whilst adding, We are not seeking to minimise the seriousness of the offences. Our submissions are intended to reflect the fact that a whole life order is reserved for rare cases of exceptional gravity where a whole life order is made for the purpose of pure punishment and not for public protection. As a result, Roberts had his sentence reduced to 25 years on appeal, meaning that he is eligible for parole in 2037 when he will be 71 years old. I was horrified when I first learned of this case a while back. Whilst I think any crime is abhorrent, crimes against children and crimes against the elderly and the vulnerable really get me, they sicken me, and I really do think it's a new depth of evil. And this guy, Michael Roberts, well, his crimes are just something absolutely despicable. I mean, don't you agree that this is one of the worst individuals breathing today? To commit a three hour repeated perverse sexual assault against an elderly woman and to batter another partially disabled one so badly with a steam iron no less that she's left brain damaged and requiring daily care. Or to beat and traumatise an elderly woman so much that she loses the power of speech. Well to me there is no place on earth for a person capable of doing things like that. I'm also convinced that Roberts is responsible for many more attacks that may have gone unconnected to his series or even unreported. He was a prolific burglar and often high on drugs or alcohol. I don't believe for a second that he could have curbed his offending, purely down to his basic need to score money to fund his vices at the time of his attacks he was living with different partners and so would arguably not be deprived of sex at home but it's likely that the degrading and humiliation of his victims gave him a massive sexual thrill the fear he instilled massively turned him on there'd be no other reason to commit heinous acts such as these unless the person responsible was severely disturbed and yes he had documented anger issues and had been on anger management courses during his various spells in prison but what had any of these people done to him? It can't even be argued that he committed the acts whilst out of his mind completely under the influence of drugs or alcohol, because he still had the mindset to remove all fingerprints and as much traces of himself as possible. He was never charged with Irene Graney's murder and therefore a murder is officially classed as still unsolved. Yet it's always been linked with the beast of Bermondsey attacks and I believe for very good reason. Now I cannot say of course because Roberts has never been charged with this crime that he is guilty of the murder. There is no definitive unquestionable proof but I will say with all of the conviction that I can muster is that I do believe Irene's killer is now behind bars and with any justice will die inside. I also believe a possible comparison should be made to another recently reopened cold case the 1985 murder of 86-year-old Clara Curtin, who's an elderly lady found murdered in her own home on Great Suffolk Street in Southwark. There's a link to the article detailing this case in with the show notes this week, so check it out guys, see what you think and if you agree about any possible connection. Jump down the rabbit hole on this and check this guy out, and then by all means, I invite you to get in touch with me to discuss and debate the case of Michael Roberts, the Beast of Bermondsey. I haven't revolutionised anything during my break. The discussion thread will be there as usual and I look forward to seeing what you think. Open invite all. I know the regular posters who will of course chip in with their always welcome thoughts but there's always room in an invite for others to do so as well. So three and a bit weeks went by quickly and it really does feel like I've not been away. Well I haven't really. I've just been doing the behind the scenes lot and getting a couple of weeks ahead of myself, bringing you today's case, creating the next couple as well. And of course, this month's bonus Patreon supporters exclusive episode, which was released the other day in the Break Between series. Anybody interested in becoming a supporter of the show, head on over to the Patreon page of the show for details, the link to which, along with my social media contact and follow details, is in the show notes this week. I'll be back with another case next Truer Crime Thursday, so I hope that you can join me then. Same bat time, same bat channel. I really don't get to say that enough. Until then, take care and have a good and safe week all, and I shall speak to you then. Thanks very much for joining me guys, and goodbye for now.